It is always troubling to see the news. Sometimes it's better not to watch it. Uh, things that go on in our world, and yet there are always glimpses of grace in watching one of the guys that was a young man that was being interviewed, laying in a hospital bed. He had been shot twice, and just the uh, the interview and hearing him and getting a sense that he had that he was a Christian. Lord only knows he wasn't as clear as all that, but spoke of just the. Um, Forgiveness in his heart for the guy who shot him, his concern for him. He said, I will pray for him. How lost must you be? Where must your soul be to do something like that? He spoke of the reality of evil in our world. And even in the midst of it, for a man like that, his testimony laying in a, in a hospital bed to the, to the truth of Scripture, of good and evil, of the enemy that is present in our world and have a faith that in the midst of such things offers mercy and forgiveness and prayer and grace. And that grace is, as we say, there, there is light. He said, and, and despite this darkness, he said there is a light that is brighter than all the darkness and will overcome it. And I thought, you know, this, this glimpse, that, that grace, that light is the overriding central point of our existence. As we come this morning to a passage that is a couple of thousand, three thousand years old in terms of the history that it's telling and the glimpses of grace as it's looking forward to the coming of Christ. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to read the first 17 verses. The unfolding covenant of grace. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Hear then the word of God. Now when the king lived in his house... And the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, and the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, and he said, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel out of Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you, from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I have made you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. And moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men and with 
the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, who I put away from before me. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all of these words, in accordance with all of this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning. Because you alone have the words of life. You alone are a light in the darkness. You alone make sense of a senseless world. You alone have grace and salvation. And we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts this morning that we may see it and love it and embrace it. That it may be the central and driving force in our lives. For we ask and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we're told two things about David as this passage opens up. It's a transition into a new era in David's life. And we're told two things as it opened up. We're told that the king lived in his house. And that he had peace. That he had rest from all his enemies. From his enemies all around. Right? That's verse 1. King lives in his house. And the Lord had given him rest. David's claim to the throne has not gone uncontested. He was contested. Saul had other children besides Jonathan. One of them by the name of Ishbosheth. Staged a rebellion. He actually was proclaimed king in the north and was king of the uh, northern tribes of Israel. And so David was initially just king of Judah and a couple of the southern tribes. And there's a lot of infighting and intrigue that goes on. And eventually Ishbosheth is assassinated by a couple of loyalists. When the Philistines heard that David was made king, whenever there's transition in a country, especially if you don't have a stable way to transfer government, it can be a real tricky time for a government. And so in the transfer of power to David, and there's this infighting, and the Philistines think we should test David's resolve, test David's strength. And so twice the Philistines make incursions into Israel. They make raids into Israel to test and see if they couldn't subject Israel at this point. And twice, David is able to drive them out. In chapter 6, the ark is finally returned to Jerusalem. On the second attempt, last Sunday, we spent time talking about the first failed attempt to get the ark to Jerusalem. But David goes back and he brings the ark to Jerusalem. And the opening verses then of chapter 7, what we have then is this window of peace. Where David has rest from his enemies internally and externally. There's this window of peace where his throne is established and his palace is finished in chapter 5. Once he's proclaimed king of both Israel and Judah and he solidifies his throne, he begins building a palace. He hires the king of Tyre to build him a house. And so his throne is established, his, his palace is now finished. We're told he's living in his house. The ark is in Jerusalem and so he has time to reflect. And as he reflects, it it occurs to him uh, that his house has prospered. That life is good. He's in a good place. His capital has been established. He's got the the ark and his armies and he's got peace and the Philistines have been driven out and he's king. And he's sitting in his house of cedar and he he begins to reflect on the the fact that there's this contrast in his life between the, 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 the his digs His house, where he dwells, and the ark is in a tent somewhere in the city. And he says, there's something not right about this picture. 
Right? There's something not right about this. I need, to, I need to rectify this. Foreign craftsmen had built him a house of cedar with imported wood. And the ark is in a tent. It's not unlike the, the, the thought that the prophet brought in the book of Haggai when Israel returned from their exile. They'd been in Babylon, had come in, and the Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem and they had raised the temple, that is, they had uh, taken it to the ground and destroyed it and taken them into, into exile. When Israel came back, they started to rebuild. And the first thing they did was they rebuilt their houses and their places to live. And so in Haggai 1.4, it's there in your bulletin under the first point. In Haggai, he says, the prophet says to Israel, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? That is in your, your comfortable houses. You're the, made of cedar from foreign kings. Is it a time for you to be living in your in comfort and luxury while this house, that is the temple, lies in ruins? And that's that's the, the disjointed feeling that David has, this incongruity, his concern, and it's a good concern, is for God's glory. If God has given him a place like this to live, and God as we talked about last time, dwells with the ark in the midst of his people, that, that this is the place where he meets with his people. Is it right that he should live in such a house? And so his desire is to advance the Lord's interests in the world, to, to advance the Lord's house, to build his kingdom, to build and to put forward God's glory. It's a good sense that all of us ought to have, that as we find ourselves prospering, and I don't know that we'll ever get where David got and we sat and say there's peace all around. We sit in the comfort of our houses and, and our, our reign is established, so to speak, and we have time to reflect on God's goodness, time to reflect on, on God's grace and the prosperity of our own house. Now, we may not be a king, but God is always good. And as we are good, there should be some reflection on, as God blesses us, is it an end in himself? Is it an end in itself? Or there is a sense of, of gratitude of all that God is doing in our lives. He blesses us that we might be a blessing. Is there not something I may do for God's house, for God's kingdom, for God's purposes, for God's interest to the world? Is it all about God building my house? Or is it about me also entering into what God is doing? And so, anyway, there's this sense for David that he's got to do something. Nathan agrees with him. Verse 3, he says, go and do whatever is in your heart. It sounds good. Now, Nathan hasn't asked God, but it sounds good. And so in verse 4 and 5, as Nathan goes to bed that night, God comes to him and says, it's not good. I, I, don't, I don't want David to do this. Right? And so in verse 4 that night, the word of the Lord comes to Nathan. He says, go tell David, thus says the Lord. Are you going to build me a house? And he says, no temple. Or at least, not David not yet, right? Not David and not yet. But even as he says no, I want us to see God's grace unfolding in this passage. Because it's always true in our lives, I think, that when God says no, and he often does, by his grace and for his glory, he says no. But at the same time, his grace is unfolding, right? In this, in this whole thing, he is gently and graciously, at least the way I read this, he is gently and graciously putting David in his place. He's telling David like it is. He's giving him a bit of an attitude adjustment, a bit of a, of a perspective adjustment. As David has thought, I'm going to build God a house. And it seems from what God says to him in the verses that follow, at least to me, there's more than one way, I guess, to, to read that. But it seems to me 
from what God is saying that David may have become a bit full of himself. That David might be a little puffed up at this point. And, and it's not uncommon. It's easy to lose perspective in this world. And we know this. It's so easy to lose perspective. Because we work hard and we do things and, and prosperity comes into our lives in different forms. We have stuff. We either get material blessing. Some of us have positions within the community or, you know, we attain to a certain level of power and money is power and position is power and here it is. And a lot of times, sometimes we figure out like what we're doing and what we have in our position and what we're generating that we're something. You know, sometimes we think that we can do, you know, we'll do God a favor. You know, we're going to do God a favor by you know, giving him this or doing this for him, you know, like we're this magnanimous gesture to God that, you know, I'm going to do this thing because I have the means and the power to do it. And, you know, I don't know where David is. God knows his heart. But it seems from the way God responds to him that he may become a little full of himself. Because in verses 5 to 7, God says, first of all, I didn't really ask for a house. Right? He tells his prophet Nathan, go tell David, my servant, are you going to build me a house? I haven't lived in a house since... You know, I brought, since I brought you and your people out of Egypt, since I did that amazing work of salvation, I haven't lived in a house, and I've had judges and prophets and leaders before you, the judges who went before you, and I didn't ask them for a house. I haven't asked you for a house. You know, in other words, it's, there seems to be a sense of perhaps presumption on David's part as he steps forward, puts himself forward, that I'm going to do this. And so God says, not yet and not you. In verse 8, he says, basically, that I raised you up. Now, therefore, you say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. I exalted you. He said, you know, this is a statement in my mind. It's one of those like, Who, where were you when I found you? You know, what were you when I found you? You smelled of sheep on the backside of the wilderness somewhere when I found you. I raised you up. I made you prince. I gave you all this stuff. Right? I'm the one who, he says, he goes on and says it, verse 9, since then, I'm the one who's been with you. And when God says, I've been with you, that means with you in the way of blessing. I have been with you. I have given you victory. I have given you the great name. There's not one thing you have, David, that I didn't give you. What are you going to give to me? And if he does give, it's, it's, it may be just a matter of perspective. It's not that God doesn't want us to make a return of the blessings that he pours out on us. But some of it has to do with the posture in which we do it. And whether we give back a portion of all those good things, recognizing that every good and perfect gift has come from his hand. And we give because in the end it's all His, and I wouldn't have one piece of it if He hadn't given it to me. By His grace. I made you what you are, David. I made you what you are. In verses 10 and 11, He goes on to say, and I'm not done yet. I will still appoint a place for my people Israel, and I'm going to plant them, and, and they will dwell in their, <clears throat> in their own place, and they will have peace. I'll appoint judges over Israel. I will, I will care for my people. I'm not done. I am the Lord of Israel. I'm the king of Israel. I'm doing something. 
so I think in verse 11, it's kind of funny because in verse 5, he does, as he opens this whole dialogue, he says, go tell my servant David. The first thing he says is, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house? And then in verse 11, it sounds a little bit like silly king. I'm going to build your house. Right? This all started with David's desire to build God a house. In verse 11, God turns it around and he says, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. I'm going to build your house. There's amazing grace in this. This is a gentle, in my estimation, a gentle rebuke, a gracious rebuke, a reminder to David of who is, even though he's king, who the Lord is. Who the true king is. And, and even as he gently puts him into place and, and rebukes him, there is this, this beautiful saying no, but at the same time ultimately giving him more than he could ever ask or even imagine. Right? He said no to the temple, and if David had locked his heart on that, he could have gone home and fussed and complained and, you know, worried and why isn't the Lord letting me do this? And, and it was so, imp- you know, things become so important to us the way we hold them. But he gives him more than he asked and imagined. His grace appears this way so often to us. We want something. It seems good to us. We set our hearts on it. It seems logical. It, it seems right. It seems good. And, you know, in David's case, it even seemed good to Nathan. That sounds like a good idea. Why don't you do all that's in your heart? Uh, you know, blessing be on you until he goes to bed and he hears the word of God to him. It even seemed good to Nathan. But God, in his own wisdom, has reasons for saying no, as he does for us. There are things that we set our hearts on and that we, they seem logical, they seem right, and we want them or we even think we need them. God, in his wisdom, for his own reasons, says no. Sometimes not yet. Sometimes not you. Sometimes not ever. But even as he says no, he blesses us. Because he gives us not what we want, but what we truly need. Because he works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called called according to his purpose and his grace. That God is doing his work, even in David's life, as he says no. Right? In David's case, he was a military man, and he wasn't done fighting. And the temple that would be built would be a type or a picture of the church. And the, and the church is the church of the Prince of Peace. And he says, a man with blood on his hands, a military man, is not going to build it. I'm going to give rest to the people of Israel, and your son will build the temple. But even as he says no, he blesses David in unforeseen ways, in unexpected ways. You know, for us, I think there's a thousand ways that we, you can look in your own life and think of examples of places where you had thought it was good, it seemed logical, you wanted it. One of the places that, that I've seen even recently in, in relationships is where we were fixed on that dating relationship and we think it's the thing that is going to save us. You know, we think it's, it's the thing that, that is going to make me happy for my whole life. We think this is it. And at some point, if God breaks off that relationship, that dating relationship, sometimes you see that the... The one who didn't initiate it think it's what they want, think it's what they need, and it's almost like you can't go on living. The whole world is going to end. My world, as I know it, is over. We hold on to, and you can just, in your own life, think of the things that you're holding on to and saying, I've got to have it, or I can't be happy. 
I've got to have it, or, or God's not good. I've got to have it, or somehow he's letting me down. But when we disentangle our hearts from our desires, and David let it go, we can see God open new doors. We see God, God's gifts. We see what God's promises. We see what he's going to do. Often you get further down the road and you look back and you say, thank you, Jesus, for saving me from that relationship. Thank you, Jesus, for the relationship you ultimately brought me, the, that which you brought into my life as I moved forward. We learn to let go of what we think we need and want and learn to accept what God gives and understand he's working together for the good of those who love him. He's working for our best. And God's ultimate gift is a relationship with Him. It is a covenant of grace that I want us to see in this passage. It is the unfolding and the advancement of the covenant of grace and God's promises to David. That these promises to David here, fairly early in the Old Testament, or fairly in this place in history, is at the very center of his work that starts in Genesis chapter 1 and doesn't end until Revelation chapter 22, 21-22. The covenant of grace. This is the covenant. It's often, in fact, the section in my Bible is entitled God's Covenant with David. Covenant is this. It, it, is, it is the agreement that gives structure to a relationship. Right? That's a covenant. That's what we call marriage a covenant. The covenant of marriage. It, it's... It's an agreement that structures the relationship. And we make promises to each other. We covenant with each other. We make vows to each other. I will love you and honor you and cherish you and keep you. Right? In sickness and in health, for better or for worse, in richer and when we're poorer. You know, in all the circumstances of life, when it's good and when it's bad. I'm going to love, I'm going to honor, I'm going to cherish, I'm going to be your companion, I'm going to be your friend, I'm going to be by your side, I'm going to walk with you until death takes us apart, separates us. Covenant. And those promises structure the relationship and everything we do in life from then on. We are now partners. Partners with a governing set of promises. That, and, and God makes... The way God has dealt with his people since the beginning of time has been in covenants. He, his relationship with us is, has been structured from the very beginning. He, what it means is that there are agreements that govern our relationships, promises that he has made, and responsibilities that he expects back from us. Grace and salvation has always been communicated to God's people in covenant, starting with Adam. We see it in Noah talks about the covenant with Noah, the promises that God makes, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses and the giving of the law, which fits right into this stream of sets of promises and things that God is doing and giving to structure relationship. But he does it here with David and he continues to do it with Jesus. Structured relationship, the covenant. He binds himself. You know, when we make promises, we bind ourselves to keep them. When we talk about, you know, there's only a few places in your life that you take vows. And you think of them, I mean, where have you taken vows in your life? If you joined this church, you took some vows. You should know what they are. You should endeavor to keep them before God. You may have taken, if you're married, you took a vow with your spouse. You should know what you've vowed. You should know your promises and you should endeavor to keep them. 
Where else have you made promises? There may be some other places. If you're an officer in the church, you've made an extra set of vows. By making promises, God binds himself to us. Because if he keeps them, can we trust God to keep his promises? Is he faithful? If he makes us promises, he has literally bound himself to us. Because he must keep those promises. And he will keep those promises. So our, our, our relationship with him is structured. And those promises and that structure, that agreement, gives us security. Just like it does, in a sense, too, I think, in a marriage. There's a lot of people who think, you know, marriage is kind of getting passe in the world around us. You know, we don't, we don't need all of that. I don't know, there is an awful lot of security that comes when we make those kind of vows to each other. And before God, we hold them and keep them. God makes promises to David. And it's this unfolding and advancing of his his saving purposes in Christ. His covenant of grace. So let's look at him in verse 12. He he makes a vow about David's dynasty. He says, "Your, your sons will be king after you. When your days are fulfilled, you'll lie down with your fathers and I will raise up your offspring after you. This is the opposite of what he said to Saul. And he points that out later on. You know, Saul ended up rejecting, but not your sons. Your sons will reign after you. When your days are fulfilled, when you die, the throne will pass to your offspring after you. Who will come from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom. And in verse 13, this offspring, your son, your immediate offspring, he shall build a house for my name. He'll build the temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In verses 14 and 15, he goes on, he says, I will be a father to him and he will be my son. He will be a son of God and I will be his father, a father to him. And I will discipline him as a son. That when he is out of line, I will discipline him. And he says, though I will discipline him, I will never reject him. I will never reject him like Saul was rejected. This is a covenant, a promise to you. One that Saul didn't have. One that you now have is that I will treat you and yours as my children. And so they will, they will be disciplined because I love them, but they will never be rejected. Never again. I will not break covenant. And why does he say he will do this? Verse 15, because of my steadfast love. My covenant love. My everlasting love. And in verse 16, he reiterates again that your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever before me. Your throne, right? Your house, your kingdom, your throne forever and ever and ever. Promises that immediately applied to David's son Solomon, who becomes king after him, reigns over the United Kingdom, builds the temple just as he said that he would. Impressive temple that he puts together is almost proverbial Solomon's temple. But these promises are only shadows and partly fulfilled in Solomon, right? They are only shadows and partly fulfilled in the sons of David and Israel's king, right? Because the kings of Israel and Judah failed. The nation split. The nation was conquered and and subjugated, and it's been subjugated for Almost 3,000 years it lived in subjugation without kings on the throne in the line of David. The the nation failed. The nation split. The line was cut off. And this promise of eternal kingship was not 
realized in the sons of David. In fact, David's line fades into obscurity. Because the promise with David's son would be king forever. That his line would not fail. He would be a son of God. That his throne would be an everlasting throne and an eternal kingdom. Has God's promise failed? This question is raised about many of God's Old Testament promises. Has his promise failed? Did he not pull it off? Has his word returned void and not accomplished all that he said that it would accomplish? It's a fair question. Paul wrestles with it in Romans chapter 9. And if you look there, is, is the hard things that Paul writes in that chapter, is it, it opens up with the whole question, has God's promise failed to Israel? God made all these wonderful promises to Israel. <clears throat> and they had not been fulfilled. But Paul's answer is, God forbid, don't be silly. God's word does not fail. In Galatians 3, there in your bulletin under the last point, it says, now the promises that were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to his offsprings, meaning many, it wasn't plural, but it was referring to one, to your offspring, who is Christ. Right? The covenant's going all the way back to the opening pages of the Bible. The covenant with Abraham and the promises that were made to him. And he said, the promises were to Abraham and his seed, his offspring. And he says, but that seed is ultimately singular. It's not going to be fulfilled in the literal or the physical national children of, of, of Abraham. But he says, you find its fulfillment in that singular offspring who is Christ. The covenant of eight with Abraham is fulfilled <clears throat> in that seed, and that it is the same is true with the covenant with David, that ultimately the promises here refer not just to David's line, but ultimately to the one whose throne would be established to forever, to the one who, whose kingdom would never fail. One man who is Christ. All right, look there under your last point again, Luke chapter 1. When the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and announces Jesus' birth, what does he say? He says, right there, verses 32 and 3, He, Jesus, will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. That was a promise that God made to David about his son. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, the promise that God made to David and his children. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, will, there will be no end. That's the promise he made to David. All, he, it's almost like he took the list of promises right out of the list there in 2 Samuel 7. And when Jesus is going to be born, he takes all those promises and rides them, rides them right back in and says, the one who's going to be born, he, this is all about him. He will reign on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom will never end. He will be the son of God, and I will be his father. This is my son in whom I am well pleased, he says, over Jesus in his ministry. Jesus is the heir and fulfillment of every promise to David. The throne of David was only a shadow of the heavenly throne. Just like the temple that was built was only a shadow of the actual presence of God and the temple in heaven, which is where God is and really reigns and dwells. And so, there it is, Acts chapter 2. You will not abandon my soul to Hades. Or let your Holy One see corruption. That's a Psalm 16, a prophecy of David. right? Because he goes on, he says there, David, 
being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with him an oath. He has covenanted to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. And David himself, as he writes the Psalms as a prophet, says, he writes as a prophet, he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. That's what God was doing. The throne of David, the resurrection of Christ, the exaltation of Jesus to the right hand of the Father, where he sits on his throne and he reigns forever. He says this is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. In fact, let me just pull it all right in to say that the new covenant in Jesus' blood, every time we celebrate communion, we say he took the cup and he said, take and drink. For this is the new covenant in my blood. We need to understand that every Old Testament covenant is fulfilled It comes to its fruition in that new covenant in Jesus' blood. Every promise to Abraham, to Noah, to Moses, to David, all throughout the Old Testament, their fulfillment is, that covenant in Christ is a fulfillment, the culmination of every other one. There in your bulletin, 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their yes in Him. You might say, so what? That's great. Good for Jesus. All the promises of God are yes in Him. But it's also good for you. It's good for us. Because the Bible says that everything Jesus is, and everything Jesus does, and everything Jesus has, as King, as Messiah, He has as a Savior. That He is a Savior. He's not just a... He is King, but He's a King who is a Savior. And as Savior, we're told that He came to seek and to save that which is lost. And that He has an invitation. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. And I will give you rest for your souls. When we trust in Christ by faith, when we bow the knee to Him in, as King... Bible says when we embrace him as king, all that is his becomes ours. As he is a son of God, we become sons and daughters of God. As he is an heir of heaven and the riches of God and of grace and of glory, that we become heirs, co-heirs with Christ by faith as we embrace him. Every promise that has ever been made is yes in Jesus. And when Jesus is yours by faith, then they become yours. So we open the Bible and we begin to read of God's covenant with us. All of the covenants that are yes in Jesus. All the promises that are yes in Jesus are yes to you in Jesus. I think as Christians we do not grasp all that this means. I don't think that we live up to the full experience of our inheritance. Of what is ours in Christ. Of what is offered to us. Ephesians 1, it's there in your bulletin, he says, blessed, He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. Or Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? All things. You can spend the rest of your life figuring out what those all things are. And grasping them and experiencing them in our lives. The love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the gentleness, the faithfulness, the self-control. The I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I will strengthen you and comfort you and empower you. And I will walk with you. And a thousand promises and a thousand things that are ours 
in Christ as we become sons and daughters. David's story is a story of grace. It's the gospel story. I love the way he says to him. He comes to David, and, it's, and it could be our story. He says, who were you when I found you? Where were you when I found you? What were you when I found you? I came to you. I picked you up and plucked you out and saved you from all of that. And, and I made you who you are and what you are. And I have an eternal, gracious blessings in store for you. More than you could ask or imagine. Eternal plans to bless. Why? Because of my steadfast love covenanted to you. That's why that... That Old Testament chesed or uh, steadfast love, it's steadfast because it's, it is actually promised to us like it is in a marriage. I will love you and honor you and keep you. It is the new covenant to us in, in his blood is the, the everlasting love of God to you. Trip, let me close with that quote in your bulletin. If you are God's child, grace is the stunning core of your existence. It should be the thing that greets your mind and fills your heart as you wake each morning. It should be your final thought as you settle in for a night of sleep. It should define how you face your day. It should shape your self-reflection. It should be the thing that directs how you respond to others. It should be at the forefront of your thoughts in times of trouble and disappointment. It should alter how you think about your finances and your possessions and your decisions and your relationships and everything else. It should be the central theme of your existence. I don't know, I, my prayer this morning is you, we, would become to, we would come to grasp and understand that. That when we come under the reign of King Jesus, that it changes everything. Our experience of everything. We bow the knee. Will you bow the knee this morning to King Jesus? To the Son of David, who was the Son of God. Who is eternally reigning. As king and king of glory and a king of grace. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we confess that as we read these things, they are almost too much for us. Part of our sin is that we, that we could hear them. That we could hear them and not be moved. That we could hear them and not fully grasp. That we could hear them and not be changed. That we could hear them and not bow the knee. And lift our hearts in worship and in praise. And in joy and in desire and passion. And in return love and faithfulness. Father would you open our eyes and help us to see. The glorious unfolding covenant of your love to your people. That has come to its fullness in Christ. And by faith in him. Would you change everything, even now as we come in worship? These things we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.